Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, so welcome everyone. Uh, there are still few people coming in, so apologies for the noise. Um, my name is Andrew Martelli, and I'm an assistant professor in European and International Political Economy at the LSE European Institute. Welcome to this evening's event, uh, Growth for Good, Reshaping Capitalism to Save Humanity from Climate Catastrophe. This is a hybrid event, uh, and the uh, hashtag for this event is actually LSE Climate. And I am very happy uh, to be welcoming Alessio Terzi uh, back to the LSE today, and also to be joined by my colleague uh, here at the LSE, Anna Valero, uh, in this panel to actually discuss Alessio's book. I think you have all seen the abstract that you find on the events page, so uh, I will spare any lengthy introduction to you. But I would like to ask you to please uh, put your phones on silent as not to disrupt the event. And the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, as usual, uh, there will be a chance for you to ask questions um, to both our panelists. And uh, the way the event is structured, we have decided that Alessio will uh, start by uh, having a brief, brief presentation uh, of his book. And then uh, uh, we'll uh, yield the floor to Anna, who will be acting as a sort of discussion to kick off the, really, uh, the debate uh, on this evening's topic. I will uh, refrain from asking many questions to then hear uh, from the audience uh, as soon as possible. So, um, I have to speak up a little bit, okay. Sounds good. Okay, I'll try to speak closer and also louder so you can also hear me in the back. Um, I um, will just introduce our um, two panelists. Alessio Terzi is actually an LSE alumnus. Uh, he did his MPA in European Public Policy and Economic Policy, class of 2011, confirmed. Um, Alessio is an economist at the European Commission, uh, direct, European Commission's Directorate General for Economic and Financial Affairs. He's also a lecturer at uh, HSE Paris and Sciences Po, and prior to this, he was an affiliate fellow at Bruegel. Um, now, uh, he also did his PhD at Hertie School, but he also spent some time as a Fulbright Scholar at uh, Harvard's Ke uh, Kennedy School, among other things, with also work experiences, for instance, at the ECB. So, uh, Alessio has both an academic and uh, uh, a policy profile uh, that is very interesting to a lot of the students in the audience. But also we have Anna Valero, uh, who is our discussant. Uh, she's Senior Policy Fellow at the LSE Center for Economic Performance. She's Deputy Director of the Program on Innovation and Diffusion 
uh, here at the LSE and an associate of the Grantham Research Institute. She completed an ESRC Innovation Fellowship in 2021 and she obtained her PhD in Economics at the LSE in 2018 and was a research director for the LSE Group Commission in 2017. Also, Anna works pretty much in this realm between policy and uh, academia. So, uh, also, if you have questions regarding that, uh, you are free, uh, you are, we are more than happy to answer all of them. So, uh, thank you both, uh, and thank you for the audience for being so numerous this evening. Um, I will uh, yield the floor directly to Alessio for his presentation. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much. I hope you can hear me. Works. Good, thanks a lot, uh, Angelo. I have to say, I, um, I lost count of how many of these presentations I've given, and yet uh, you will realize that I'm uh, uh, gonna get a bit emotional. And I think as I was walking around campus today, to think that I was uh, uh, here the last time uh, for my graduation, and now to look at the build new buildings, uh, it looks like, uh, uh, there has been a building spree because uh, I didn't graduate 50 years ago, but it looks, uh, it felt very new to me. So I wanted to show you a picture to, sh to prove that it's true that I graduated uh, from, uh, from this place, uh, which, uh, because yesterday I walked down uh, memory lane, I started looking at the pictures of the last time I was here. And uh, this conveniently uh, leads me to the first takeaway of my presentation, which is you can see, you can how uh, rapidly I aged, and so the recommendation for you is never write a book, uh, because if not, this is the uh, result. Uh, but of course, we are here to talk about a book. I know that Angelo is gonna uh, keep the time, and I'm gonna try and be short, fast, um, while realizing that many of you have not read the book yet. And so we're having a conversation about something you haven't read. And so what I'm going to try to do is to condense uh, two plus years of work. Well, first I condensed two plus years of work into 200 something pages of a book. And now I'm going to do that in 20 minutes or so. Uh, the first thing I wanted to show you, uh, aside from remarking that it is a book that we are talking about, the book exists, you've seen uh, it in physical form also outside, um, is that this is a recent book. This is information I copied from the, from the catalog of Harvard University Press, but just to show you that it is a recent book, came out just before the summer. It is a trade book. This is the first time I write a book, so I didn't know what a trade book was. I discovered that it means that it is a book written for wide audiences. And so my idea when I wrote it was that it wasn't, I, I, I didn't want to write a microeconomics textbook for the green transition. I wanted to write a book for anyone that is interested in these topics. Um, and uh, you will let me know whether I succeeded or not. Uh, but that was, uh, that was the attempt. I told you the book is roughly 200 uh, pages long. I'm not cheating, it says 368 pages there. And the reason for that is that to keep the book rigorous and yet to make it available to wide audiences, basically a third of it is endnotes. So everything is in the endnotes. You will have realized while going through it that it looks sturdy and big, but actually it's, uh, it's, uh, it's shorter and more uh, easily uh, digestible. 
but for those of you that are geeks of the green transition or green economics like myself, you will find all the references, the technical discussions, and so on in there. I've realized, I told you, I've given several of these presentations, I've realized one way to give you a sense of what the book is about is to tell you two words, spend two words on the genesis of this book. And the genesis goes back to the beginning of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You will rely, rec recall uh, there was a new uh, deadly virus, uh, there was no vaccine, there was no treatment, so governments uh, in several countries around the world decided in favor of uh, lockdown measures, confinements, they had home orders, they took different names, but that was, uh, you remember what I'm talking about if you've gone through it. And basically we were stuck at home and everything was going bad. So you had a public health situation that was going bad for the economy was tanking because consumption was shrinking. And for those that were, uh, let's say, on the optimistic side or looking for some type of silver lining, maybe the only silver lining uh, came across in, uh, in the media as nature is healing, meaning that a battery of environmental indicators started to improve. You saw it in the fact that the quality of air started to improve. Uh, CO2 emissions came down, uh, which is obviously something we're interested in. Um, the quality of water started to improve. At some point, uh, you even saw these uh, pictures in social media with uh, dolphins uh, swimming around in, in Venice's canals. Now, these pictures later proved to be fabricated. I'm from near Venice. There were no dolphins in uh, Venice's canals. Uh, but that uh, idea sort of stuck with me, which is to say, but could it be, even once you know, COVID is long gone, we have vaccines, we have treatment, could it be, given that we have to improve our relationship with nature, we have to improve on all of these environmental indicators, CO2 emissions and so on, could it be that, let's say, shrinking the economy should be part of the toolkit, policy toolbox, in order to achieve uh, this goal? Effectively, this sparked a reflection on the relationship between the economy, loosely defined, and nature loosely defined, which is what you see at the bottom of this, uh, of this slide. Uh, as soon as you start thinking about the economy, rapidly you end up thinking about economic growth. Um, and while you're doing that, you rapidly have to add an extra element, which is the way our system is organized, our economic system is organized, which uh, uh, is along the capitalistic principles. This creates a sort of holy or unholy trinity, depending where you stand, on these uh, uh, topics, and the book, if I had to summarize, if, if Angelo had given me two minutes instead of 20 minutes, the summary of the book would be this slide, because the book is a reflection on the uh, interconnections between all the elements of this triangle, which is to say, what is the relationship between growth and capitalism? Can we have, let's say, a capitalism in an economy that is just a steady state or not? And there is a debate there. Uh, what is the relationship between growth and nature? Can we continue having a growth that is uh, more uh, um, conducive to better environmental outcomes or more compatible with restoring a relationship with nature or not? And what is the relationship between capitalism and nature? Can we have so-called green capitalism or is the problem the system itself, which is uh, the system requires to destroy nature in order to exist as some say? When I present these slides, I told you I've, I've been going around uh, in circles uh, across Europe, 
uh, I've been to places and typically when talking to, let's say, smaller audiences of people that are more homogeneous, at least in terms of background, so economics, uh, mainstream economists, or macroeconomists, they already stopped me at this point. First, because economists always stop you at the third slide to ask questions. And second, they would say, but we know that growth is important. Why did you even waste um, two years plus of your life to write a book about something we already knew? And my reply to that is to say, you know, actually, maybe we know this to be discussed what we know and what is to be uh, is open for debate but there is a there are large scores of people that are not so convinced uh, that this is the case and actually that there is a growing disenchantment both towards capitalism as a system and towards economic growth and i argue early on in the first chapter of the book actually that this is particularly concentrated in the younger generation so millennials my generation and gen z and the reason for that, I argue, is first that these are generations that have seen very limited growth and so that the co in advanced economies and so that the very concept of uh, you know, growth is important to, to improve living standards and so on remains a, an abstract concept that you might have read somewhere but you haven't experienced it yourself and that's what the chart on, on the left uh, tries to show it is a chart done for the United States, and what it says is that the cumulative growth of uh, GDP um, per capita across different generations in U.S. history was the lowest for millennials, um, again, in the first 15 years of their working life. If we go beyond crude numbers, if I look at my own experience, I graduated uh, uh, from uh, Bocconi, so from an undergraduate, uh, around the time of the great financial crisis, so there was that recession, after that, there was the Eurozone crisis, so there was that recession as well. After that, there was secular stagnation, so it, we, there wasn't this rebound or, or growth period. After that, there was COVID recession. Now there is potentially an energy recession or stag, uh, stagnation, stagflation to be determined. So it always feels like growth is around the corner, but this is a corner that never quite turns. So that's the first realization. The second is, of course, that there's been a lot of work done, especially in certain countries, showing that where there has been some growth, this has also been partnered with growing inequalities. Um, and so, and of course, there's a picture of Thomas Piketty. He's not alone. There's a lot of people who have been working on this. But just to say, if we haven't seen that much growth, and when we have, it has been pocketed by the top 1%, top 0.1%, largest corporations, you can slice and dice this thing in different ways that has, has, has been done. Um, again, it, it makes you wonder whether we need this concept at all. And of course, there is a growing environmental awareness. And historically, it's a fact that if you look at 200 years of history or more, you will see a pickup in growth around the time of the first uh, Industrial Revolution. And that's the time where also CO2 emissions uh, started to pick up uh, exponentially. So if you look at the long-term trend, they look aligned. So it looks like let's say, uh, growth and uh, CO2 emissions, at the very least, are uh, uh, intertwined. This is what uh, the economist was already calling uh, millennial socialism, when yesterday I was walking down memory lane, I found a picture of me as a LSE student, uh, also went, already was aware of this trend in society and went to check out uh, uh, the Marx uh, tomb, um, anyhow. Uh, so the first part of, uh, of the book uh, um, look at, looks at this uh, relationship. 
And um, what I try to say there up front in the second chapter of the book is to say, look, after analyzing a bit, defining what we mean with capitalism, how the system works, uh, what are the bare bone elements? Because of course there are varieties of capitalism, uh, and so Japan and the way the economy is organized there is not the same as Sweden, which is not the same as the US, which is not the same as the UK, and so on. But when you go to the common elements and you find, let's say, a bare bone definition of capitalism, there are elements within the system that sort of reinforce this quest for growth. It can be the competition between firms, firms that are trying to maximize profit, system organized by, around prices, you will find more in the book. But the reason why I think this is important is because I often read, or I often hear, including from, uh, let's say, natural scientists, um, let's say, calls for doing more on climate change, and there is a long list of things we need, you will read, uh, you know, we need more renewables, we need more, I don't know, circular economy, uh, a list of other things, and by the way, we also need to ditch economic growth. And what I'm trying to say early on in the book is, well, careful, because if you're saying that we need to ditch economic growth, and economic growth and the system we're, we're living in are deeply intertwined, what you're telling me is that we have to restructure completely the way our society is organized, or the way our economic system is organized, which at this point, it's still fine, but then it means you have to come up with a blueprint of your alternative society, and then we discuss on that. You cannot just drop it in there and say, by the way, we also need to you know, restructure society. Um, while I was doing this research, I realized that there is, uh, I tried to um, not fall in the mistake that we're often accused of making, as economists, which is to read only our own research, um, and in particular also our mainstream, let's say, research, um, and the joke goes, you know, we write a paper, we discover a relationship, and there's a relationship that sociologists were writing about 100 years ago, uh, but we don't know that because we don't read that literature. I was trying to avoid this mistake, and so I read as wide as I could. And the, this is the, what you will uh, find if you uh, decide to uh, read the book, is that I draw from a variety of literatures. And I've enjoyed that very much. It was actually one of the parts I enjoyed the most of, of book writing, is that I ended up reading uh, uh, from anthropology, from sociology, from social psychology, at some point even from evolutionary biology for some stuff that I was interested in. Uh, because you realize that a lot of disciplines are working on aspects of, uh, from philosophy that I was interested in. And many of these debates have been going on for millennia. The importance of material goods versus non-material goods, uh, uh, whether there are needs or wants, and what defines a want or a need, and so on. This is stuff that Plato was talking about. Okay? And so there, there was a wide, I didn't, uh, I tried to read as much as I could, but uh, I didn't want to write only one book in my life when I'm 70, so I, I tried to uh, cut the work at some point. But I realized that there was a literature that was making exactly the same realization that I was making early on, which is to say capitalism and growth are indeed intertwined. But the, the, while, uh, let's say, we start from this similar realization, they were concluding, therefore, we need to get rid of economic growth. And to do that, therefore, we need to get rid of capitalism. And while we're doing that, we will focus on nature. There will be some scarcity but this will be voluntary scarcity. So this is something that we should embrace along the lines of what we would call, let's say, on a personal level, minimalism, 
and so you would have some sort of societal level minimalism, um, we will have less, but we will share more. So of what is left, uh, there will be more sharing, both within countries and between countries. This, this literature falls under various names. It can be called eco-socialism, it can be called steady-state economy, it can be called degrowth. It, it takes uh, different names. There are some differences uh, for the sake of uh, my argument here. We will not uh, enter into them. The policy conclusions, uh, if you read the world along these lines, are that you have to abandon economic growth, at least uh, in a subset of countries of the world, so rich uh, countries. You will do that to an extent that will uh, leave space for uh, emerging market, less developed uh, economies to uh, grow, because of course these are countries that still need growth in order to provide for the poorest of the poorest, and so you need to allow for that. Uh, generally this literature is not necessarily against innovation per se, uh, but what they would say is we are squandering innovation because we are letting private sector companies do it, and they end up doing, I don't know, the metaverse rather than investing in uh, uh, cut uh, you know, the most innovative solar panels or hydrogen, green hydrogen or whatnot. Um, and so this should be more centralized. So governments should do innovation, but in a centralized way. Um, we would embrace, uh, what I was telling you, a life of sufficiency. This is similar to what we see in eco-villages. I don't know how well versed you are in this type of literature, but these are physical places. So they exist. Uh, they are small towns, villages, uh, between 50, 100, 200 people who have sort of rejected the principles of capitalism, prices and so on. You engage in basic trades, you do agriculture, you do everything locally, produce locally, um, and you live, uh, let's say, a life of sobriety. Um, so produce locally, direct democracy, collegial decision making in these uh, small uh, settings. So effectively what this literature is saying is we have to scale up this concept. So take that as a pilot and make it society. Um, now, the book takes a lot of time to try and see these critiques of capitalism as much as possible as at face value. This is something that actually I discussed with my editor at the time. It's something that doesn't get done usually. Effectively, I have one chapter at the beginning of my book that looks at uh, things that I will eventually disagree with in a neutral way. Nobody does that. It's actually a bit of a bet because you have the risk of losing your readers uh, and uh, actually convincing them of, of the opposite of, uh, of your view early on. But I thought it was uh, fair because I think that a lot of the critiques that are raised are very, uh, are very right, are very true. Um, however, I come to some, uh, uh, slight, some different conclusions. Um, and the reason why I come to different conclusions starts from the relationship, let's say, between growth and inequality. And what my book uh, tries to argue, using a variety of uh, historical uh, elements, uh, taking elements from different civilizations, different moments in history, and so on, and a variety of other literature, is to say, look, in an environment of steady state, so in an environment where you don't have growth, um, it is actually, um, you, you're at risk of sparking more, uh, let's say, uh, battles over what is left. So you're entering into a more conflictual type of situation, which will not pave the way for this, uh, you know, greater sharing, neither within countries, but even less so uh, between countries. Um, and the reason, and we know that because, you know, for, for a long part of, uh, of, of human history, 
there was uh, some growth, but it was very slow. And if you look back at periods before the Industrial Revolution that I was mentioning, for example, it's not like in the Middle Ages, in the Feudal Ages, you had this super advanced welfare state with huge transfers from the rich to the poor. And to the extent that there was any transfer, it wasn't of the type from the rich to the poor that we have in mind, but it was from the poor to the rich, or from the less powerful to the more powerful in, uh, in society. And the reason for that, I argue again, at greater length than I can do now, is that it is not this quest for more loosely defined. That doesn't mean necessarily more stuff and wanting five iPhones instead of one, but it is a desire for improvement. It's not something that is uh, uh, due to the system. So it's not an imposition of capitalism on otherwise uh, indifferent people, but rather it's something that I would argue is closer to an inbuilt uh, uh, feature. Um, and again, you can read the whole of human history in such a way. So in, uh, in a way, we have used technology, know-how, innovation, which is actually the only thing that makes us uh, uh, unique to a certain extent with respect to other animals on this planet um, to get more of what we wanted more of. You can read the invention of fire in this way. You can read, uh, you know, navigation, early navigation, fishing, everything that we uh, have achieved, clothing, in order to move to higher latitudes, and so on and so forth, is a desire to use what we're good at, which is coming together as groups, uh, so not the individual innovation that I can do on my own, rather coming together as groups, developing uh, um, cumulative knowledge, as it is called in the environment, the, uh, evolutionary biology uh, literature that I was referring to, and then using this knowledge to get more of the stuff we want more of, which again doesn't mean necessarily objects, but is a broader concept. En passant, but of course crucial to our talk today, there is a discussion on this relationship between growth and nature. And what I try to say there is, look, the very concept of economic growth didn't start with the Industrial Revolution or with the moment in which we started using fossil fuels. There was growth beforehand. There was great work that has been done by Roger Fouquet, who is no longer here at the LSE, but was at the Grantham Institute, um, who shows that there was growth in, uh, in other civilizations or in, other, in countries in Europe uh, in uh, the 1500s, 1400s, and so on. It's just that it was uneven growth. It was followed by bust periods, and so on. It's not like growth didn't exist. And I try to go at, uh, to, to extend this concept to make the point that growth is not a direct result of fossil fuels or the extraction of fossil fuels, um, but rather it is using technology, innovation, and know-how in the service of human needs and wants as they have evolved throughout time, which is not meant to say that everything is fine. Rather, we have built uh, over the past 200 years, a civilization that is deeply anchored in fossil fuels. And so what I'm trying to say there is, look, it is the current model of growth that is something that is no longer sustainable, but that does not mean that an alternative growth model cannot be uh, engineered. And therefore, the subtitle of the book, which is uh, not uh, go out of this room, everything is fine, and capitalism is going to take care of everything, but it is reshaping the current growth model, capitalism, and so on, in the service of the needs of the moment, which right now are improving our relationship with nature. 
therefore the overall conclusion that I already told you, which is to say, rather than dreaming of an alternative society, an alternative system, and so on, why don't we leverage capitalism, which has many issues? It has some of these, uh, let's say, centripetal dynamics, and therefore it is prone to lead to growing inequalities and so on, if left alone. But if there is one thing that he has proven good at, is fostering innovation. And we're going to need a lot of this innovation, and we need it fast. And so rather than dreaming of smashing the system, aren't there ways to reorient that system and that innovation machinery to the service of what we need right now? Whether it is decarbonization, environmental, uh, in, let's say improving a battery of environmental indicators, and so on, this will not happen on its own. But I think a crucial point is that this will not happen uh, on its own, but also not uh, only as a result of government action. And I say this because I sit in a policy town, I sit in Brussels, I've given a lot of these talks, we're in London, so another, that's well, also policy town, uh, home of government, uh, I've given these talks in Washington, in other places where there is always a lot of focus on government's policy and so on. Uh, this event is organized by the School of Public Policy, so I'm not going to say that policy doesn't matter. There's a lot that policies can do. There's a lot that governments can do. They're very important. You can think of the usual regulation, carbon pricing, uh, industrial policy, we can talk about it, and so on. But it doesn't stop at that. And therefore, we cannot do the green transition while sitting in Brussels on our own. We need uh, other actors in society as well. We need... Uh, uh, pioneering businesses into this, uh, into this fight, and we need citizens which are also consumers, so in this double uh, uh, personality, let's say, to play a role, and that, that's why I talk of something closer to a whole-of-nation approach. When I talk about these things, what I have in mind is that we're trying to generate something that is close to a new industrial revolution. Uh, this is because we are trying to reinvent the whole, everything we do. I told you that we live in a fossil fuel civilization. Any action, basically, that we take right now depends on, on fossil fuels to a certain extent. And we're trying to reinvent all of this because we want to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, which means you have to reinvent the whole of production, the whole of consumption, transport, housing, agriculture, everything. And so... If you look at parallels, uh, uh, you will have realized I'm, I'm very fond of, of history, so I try to look at moments in economic history that has some, have some parallels and draw lessons for the future. And I, I think that there are lessons to be drawn from past industrial revolutions, which we're trying to do against a timeline. We're trying to use government policy. The role of government policy is to make sure that this industrial revolution happens against the timeline imposed by climate scientists that tell us you have to reach it by 2050. I would argue this transition would happen. On its own, it would happen because people want it, want uh, technologies that are less polluting uh, from a uh, sound point of view, from a quality of air point of view. So these things would happen progressively, but we don't have a century. It took the first industrial revolution at least 80 years to roll out uh, in the face of huge productivity improvements and so on, but it took a very long time, the second uh, as well, and we don't have that time. So we're trying to make this happen very fast. When these things happen, you have a complete recasting of comparative advantages across companies, across sectors, across firms. Some will emerge as winners, some will emerge 
as losers, some countries, companies, sectors will remain stuck in technologies that are rapidly perceived as inferior, lower quality, and old. Um, another important point that I, that I take from this uh, literature, don't look at me with that face, I, I'll be fast, two slides. Eh? <laughs> um, but I think that it's a, a very important point is on inequalities. What do we know from past industrial revolutions when these things happen and you have these complete reorganizations, restructurings, restructurings of the economy, you generate winners and losers and you're at risk of leaving large swathes of people behind. The reason why I'm pointing your attention to this book, which is the only book I will quote aside from my own in this presentation, is because it's a great book by late professor Calestus Juma at the Harvard Kennedy School and what he did is he looked the innovations of the past. Um, again, he did a historical exercise. He was looking at various civilizations. Why did the printing press spread in Europe, but then it took uh, centuries uh, for it to spread in the Islamic world? And he does that across a variety of technologies and so on. And what he comes, uh, he comes to the conclusion that effectively where there were large groups of people that were at risk of remaining behind or perceived that they were at risk of remaining behind. So even there is a mixing of perception and reality that doesn't really matter. But if you perceive that you're not part of this transition, you will oppose it. And so I make an argument that is almost, uh, is very pragmatic. So there are reasons why you want to fight inequalities and so on that are more ethical. I'm making the point that if you do not complement the policies that you're putting in place to accelerate the green transition with policies to reduce these inequalities or contain them as you're doing that, people will oppose the green transition, full stop. Um, and telling them that this is in the interest of their children, grandchildren, and so on, ain't gonna work. Uh, which is why you need to proceed in parallel on these two dimensions, accelerate the green transition, and make sure that the people, regions, areas, professions are not left behind. There is much more in the book, so you can tell that we're reaching the end, uh, which I'm not gonna cover. Um, there is a discussion on the relationship uh, between growth and GDP, there is this large debate on should we move beyond GDP and so on. This is uh, my daily bread, that's part of what I do also at the European Commission. I still remember that this is a conversation I was having in, when I was a student here at the LSE. I remember a friend of mine, Fabrizio, we were uh, classmates and he, he was telling me like, ah, you should look into this work of uh, uh, Amartya Sen, C. they're doing some beyond GDP work, it looks really cool. And 10 years later, I'm, uh, I'm the beyond GDP man at, uh, at DG ECFIN of the European Commission. So there is a discussion on that and how growth relates to GDP. They're not the same thing and how GDP or growth relate to well-being, um, how it relates to liberal democracy and so on and so forth. The way I've presented it to you, it sounds I've been writing this book flying at uh, 3,000 miles high, super abstract, looking at the Industrial Revolution, the 1500s, the Roger Fouquet work, and so on. It is a book that is also very practical. So there is a part that is more historical, in part maybe reflecting what Angelo was saying, that I have multiple personalities. I, I, I work for a policy institution. I'm also a lecturer at university. I was at a think tank, so I, I do multiple things. And you will see that in the way the book is structured. So there are books, there are chapters that are much more practical. And one of the chapters that shows this practicality is using Italy as a case study and as a country I know a bit about to show that 
this is a country that ended up in a steady state by accident, so it wasn't by policy design, uh, but basically it's a country that haven't, hasn't experienced uh, uh, GDP per capita growth over 20 plus year, years, maybe 30 by now. And I use that chapter to show the, let's say, the negative dynamics that are unleashed if you enter into a steady state environment, particularly if other countries don't follow you. And so, the, let's say, bringing in this international dimension, which of course is crucial for, uh, also for a climate change perspective, global problem, and so on. Uh, and there's a chapter on that as well. So on international cooperation in the face of climate change and what we can realistically expect from climate cooperation in the face of, of climate change, I'm not gonna say more. Um, there is a blueprint, again, a more practical chapter on how to do the things that I mentioned need to happen. And there's a final chapter on the so-called green macro, what we call green macro, um, which is to say, what if we implemented all the things I'm talking about, we did uh, all the Green New Deal uh, or European Green Deal, or the UK equivalent, the Japanese equivalent, the Korean equivalent, whatever, if we were to do all these uh, revolutionary changes to our economy, what would happen to economic growth? So it sort of turns around the question, and there I'm generally at odds with, uh, with economists, uh, let's see what, uh, what Anna thinks, um, but I argue, I mean, I, I've sort of uh, uh, spilled the beans already, if I tell you that I expect something that resembles an industrial revolution, I expect uh, that this will generate uh, huge rewards uh, for those that uh, manage to navigate this transition and, uh, and not great rewards for those that don't, but it will have huge repercussions for economies, jobs, and so on. So this is not gonna be a neutral transition. It's not that we're just switching from one uh, energy source to another, it's something wider. Which leads me to my final slide, which is the, it is an event uh, on policy, European Institute, and so on. So three conclusions, policy conclusions for you. The first is we often make the moral argument as to why we need to do this green transition. We say, you know, uh, if you look at it from a developed country perspective, we uh, broke the, we created the problem, therefore we need to provide for the solution. Uh, you can make the argument like you want to leave a better or a, at least an equally decent planet to your children and grandchildren that you inherited. So there are a lot of moral arguments that you can make. And those are real and they're fair. My point is, even if for a second you put the moral arguments aside, there is a very strong self-interested reason to try and be a pioneer in this green transition. Because if you master the technologies of this green transition, this will pave the way for decades of economic success. If you've ever heard the names Porsche, Maybach, Benz, Daimler, you've heard them because these are companies that sell cars. These are the names of engineers, German engineers, that at the turn of the last century managed to pioneer specific aspects of combustion engine technology, and this has paved the way for decades of, uh, let's say, success in, in selling and being at the frontier of this technology. So it makes self-interested sense to try and be a pioneer in this thing. The second point is, if you, if you agree with me that there are gonna be winners and losers, you cannot expect governments to sit back, relax, and uh, see whether their, their country ends up on the losing side or the winning side. And rather, they will use 
all the policy tools they have to try and make sure that their country, their companies, will be uh, at the frontier of these green technologies. And I would argue that this is the reason why you're seeing a more active use of things like industrial policy, defensive industrial policy, this spot that we're currently having with the United States, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Europeans, and so on. You will see more of that. You will see more governments using trade and clauses in trade treaties and putting green uh, into trade treaties, carbon border taxes, and so on and so forth. So let's say a laissez-faire approach was never credible in my view and since I wrote the book we're seeing more of this and the final point is I gave you a talk that is very much developed country centered in part because a lot of the calls let's say to abandon growth and so on come from the developed world and they're aimed mostly at the developed world so it's a conversation that is happening very much there in part because I expect uh, uh, richer countries that have the means to do so to be pioneers in this green transition. I've given these talks outside uh, of Europe as well in emerging market uh, situations and what I hear a lot is uh, yeah you know this green thing we know that it's important we know climate change is happening but I have uh, higher level priorities or more pressing priorities. Uh, this green thing is a luxury that you can do you take care of it but I need to provide for the poorest, uh, I need to get growth uh, because uh, my people are starving. And I see where this criticism is coming from. But I would argue that it is, it, it is true, if it is true, it is going to be true for a very short period of time. And so that you are actually, by taking this view, you're uh, taking a large risk. And the reason why I say this is that what you're betting effectively on is that you're going to specialize on technologies, on current technologies, say internal combustion engine parts or whatnot, and that you're going to produce those and export those and export your way out of uh, uh, poverty and uh, experience fast growth and so on through these technologies. I would argue that the window of opportunity for doing that is closing and is closing very fast, in part because of the policies that I mentioned in point two, carbon border adjustment and so on, but in part because consumer tastes are changing and they're changing fast again in, uh, also in, in developed countries. And so your window of opportunity for doing that is, is closing fast. And on top of that, it's based on the perception that the polluting technology is the cheap, cheap technology and therefore I'm gonna use that, which is true right now, but is not written in the stars. The reason why the polluting option is cheaper is that engineers for 150 years have been improving the efficiency of internal combustion engines to the points we're at now. But there is nothing that says that the green option must forever be the expensive one and actually we're seeing more and more that the green option is becoming the cheaper option. And so the risk is that you're specializing in something that is going to be perceived as old, is not going to provide you development very fast and uh, is going to be even the, the more expensive option very soon. And so I would advise that uh, the better option is to try and uh, um, get on the green transition train where instead we're experiencing exponential growth. Uh, and we're expecting exponential growth in terms of EVs, batteries, uh, and so on and so forth. That's it. Thank you. As you can see, Alessio is so engaging and so engaged in his, uh, what at some point they also call this pandemic baby. This mm -hmm. uh, Bra brainchild, uh, brainchild. brainchild. Uh, 
that I mean we can be here listening to him uh, for hours, but I want to yield the floor to Anna Navalero, uh, who has read the book during the Christmas break, actually, and will tell us what she thinks about the book. Thank you very much, Angelo. Hopefully everyone can hear me. And thank you very much for inviting me here to discuss this book. Um, so, as Angelo said, Growth for Good was my Christmas reading. Um, it was a great choice. I really enjoyed it. It's a good time when you've got some space to sit back and think about the big picture. And in fact, an ongoing joke I had with my husband over the break was that if I was to ever write a book, I would love to write a book on this topic. So I'll now have to search much harder for a topic in the future. Um, so Growth for Good is, as you can see, it's a very compelling book. It makes a really important contribution at a crucial time for action, both on climate, but also on living standards. Many advanced economies have seen stagnant productivity for really a long time now. We obviously have global poverty to deal with, inequalities within countries. In this book, Alessio brings together economic arguments together with, as he mentioned, arguments from many other disciplines, and I really enjoyed reading these, whether it's politics, history, anthropology, arguments about basic human nature. And he constructs a strong argument, I think, about how capitalism, at this point, where we are now, does provide the most feasible but also attractive route to tackling the climate crisis. In other words, how pursuing economic growth within the systems we have can be a force for good, but this isn't going to be capitalism as we know it. It's going to require a lot of change, and successfully navigating the net zero transition at the pace required is going to need a new kind of capitalism, where we're going to have much more active governments, shaping and steering innovation and market forces, with businesses and citizens driving growth that is stronger, fairer, greener, and healthier. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. At this time, it's quite easy to feel a sense of despair, given slow progress internationally. Despite the fact we have increasing commitments, we know we're not moving fast enough yet to, to limit the devastating potential impacts of climate change. We're already seeing a lot of those impacts all around us, increasingly so. We know there are many barriers that need to be overcome. And I felt that this book provides an optimistic yet evidence-based message to guide policy during this decisive decade and beyond. And in some sense, that kind of a message, that kind of a thought process has been a, a motivation underlying a lot of the work that I've been doing here at the LSE with wonderful colleagues from the Center for Economic Performance, from POID, from the Grantham Research Institute. And most recently also with a UK focus in the Economy 2030 inquiry, which is a large scale collaboration between the LSE and the Resolution Foundation, where we're trying to discover how the UK can successfully navigate many sources of change and transition this decade to get to a stronger, fairer, greener economy by 2030. For those of you engaged in the UK policy environment, it's been quite an exciting week for Net Zero here. Um, we had the launch of the independent review of Net Zero by Chris Skidmore, MP, which some of our work actually fed into. This review is the outcome of extensive engagement up and down the country with a range of um, stakeholders and it makes the case that net zero is the growth story of the 21st century. 
And in fact, they find that stakeholders they spoke to are ready to go further and faster on sustainability. But the government must act decisively to make that happen. Leaving this to the market, even when there's the will, is not going to generate the change we need at the pace required. So we can only hope that government's going to take on board its many recommendations. It makes the point, I think, as Alessio said, you know, at this point, governments have the choice whether to lead or to follow in this transition. And it makes economic sense when you're an innovative economy with various strengths to be one of the leaders. So growth for good makes the, the case for this better type of growth. And I found actually that the starting point um, addressing various claims and arguments from various sources of the degrowth movement was particularly useful, particularly for someone who's been working on economic growth, sustainable growth for some time, to actually have the different arguments laid out. Um, and I thought very sensitive arguments and counter-arguments counter there as well. So one of the most compelling for me was when we think about the urgency of tackling climate change. So to a large extent, we know what we need to do. We have lots of scientists telling us which technologies, which behavior changes are required to limit um, greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, broader sustainability aims as well. So we know what we need to do. We know we need to act quickly. Achieving this is enough of a challenge within our current system, but imagine having to change that, the wholesale models and structures of our economies and our societies in the way Alessio described, both in individual countries and internationally. Is that going to happen in the timescale that we need to decarbonize? Um, is it going to happen in a peaceful way? Of course, there's also a real sense of urgency when it comes to dealing with inequalities. They've become even more stark in many cases in light of COVID and the cost of living crisis. Um, which we're going through now. Um, doing so, dealing with inequalities, is actually easier when economies are growing. There's likely to be less resistance. Again, Alessio went through these arguments. We know of various ways we can make sure the transition is a fair one. Um, lots of analyses are out there. I've done some work on the workers, the green jobs, the transition. What does this mean in labor markets? Which groups are likely to gain? Which are likely to lose? Where do we need to focus? Active labor market policies, training, other transition support. There's a whole set of analyses on households, the distributional aspects of the transition. Not all households can afford to make the various investments and upgrades required, whether it's energy efficiency, buying an electric vehicle, and then accessing all of those operational cost savings which come further along the line. So how can governments support and incentivize those investments where they need to be made? These things are really important because without having public support, again, as Alessio said, that we're not going to have a successful transition. We're going to have opposition to the transition. And we can learn from previous episodes of change and transition, cases where it hasn't been managed well, and cases where there have actually been successful policies and programs to try and manage transitions for different groups in different places. Of course, we have a recent experience as well, which was the pandemic and now the energy crisis, where governments have acted quickly to try and manage some of the impacts on more vulnerable groups. Um, a key quote for me then, um, actually, something that stood out was at the start of chapter seven, which is the chapter on the global fight for the planet. And I think the quote is, Alessio sets out where, how his book focuses more on what is likely to happen and to be feasible than on what would be ideal or desirable based on a particular moral compass. And I think that was something that I took away from the book and why, why I say it's evidence-based and sets out a compelling and realistic argument. So I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking briefly about 
the attractiveness of sustainable growth um, and a new type of capitalism, drawing a little bit on some of our work. So many have talked about the change to come in terms of a green industrial revolution. And this is because it's really large scale change across our systems, transport, energy, cities, invention, innovation, and adoption of new technologies being a central part of this story. We're not just talking about tinkering at the margins. And when such investments are accompanied by complementary investments in physical, natural, human, and social capital, this can be the basis for achieving sustainable and inclusive economic growth, together with all those other co-benefits. Um, these were arguments that I made in a recent article with Nick Stern in Research Policy, where we brought together a lot of the theoretical arguments and empirical evidence in support of a sustainable growth story. Um, if we think about what this growth can look like, say, in the short to medium term, we can expect that a lot of the net zero investments we know we need to make can create new jobs. They tend to be quite well-paid jobs, can boost demand, can improve supply, achieve energy efficiency and resilience, which of course we know now in, in light of the energy crisis is particularly urgent. They will also reduce waste, pollution, and generate broader co-benefits. Say in the medium term, or say 10 years, we'd expect to be able with all of these extra commitments and investments in R&D and the direction of travel from governments to unleash new waves of technical change, particularly as net zero and ongoing digitization interact. Many see large-scale opportunities and synergies between those two transitions. Then over any longer term, we know that low carbon is really the only feasible form of growth on offer. Anything else is likely to be counterproductive, even in growth terms. Um, but what do we... So we can think of this actually as an accelerated process of creative destruction, but it's creative destruction with a purpose, and here we can appeal to the directed technical change literature, as set out really nicely by Philippe Aguillon, one of the leaders in this literature in a recent book on creative destruction. He has a whole chapter on directed technical change in the environment. But, so this is creative destruction with a purpose, but also with active management of the destruction part. You know, as we said, the change is going to be felt unevenly by firms, workers, and households. We need to have a very active policy framework to deal with that. To achieve the kind of large-scale change we need quickly, we need strong and coordinated policies. A carbon price being fundamental here, but not enough. We need regulation, standards, government support for R&D, participation from civil society, and a strong direction of travel that can guide business decisions. In, in a era of uncertainty because we don't know all the technological solutions. We also don't know all the exact climate impacts where the tipping points are going to be reached. So what we need is the strong commitment to, to provide that sense of certainty where it is possible to guide investment decisions. And there are some real grounds for optimism in terms of what's possible. We've already seen that clean technologies, the costs have been coming down rapidly. Even before the energy crisis, we know that um, renewable energies were cost competitive. Um, there's reason to believe this can happen in all the other technologies when we're doubling down our efforts to invest in them. So I think, you know, it comes down to green industrial strategies. How can the countries with relevant strengths, comparative advantages, ensure that they can leverage those as part of an industrial and growth strategy? Um, as Alessio said, you know, this is something that's coming to light more and more with the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., with quite a lot of provisions there of building US manufacturing capacity in green technologies. And a lot of the work we've been trying to do is saying, okay, there's been 
previous experience of industrial policies um, of trying to pick winners and not necessarily doing so well, often subsidizing losers? How can governments try and identify with smart analysis, take portfolio approaches on the types of things that are likely to yield returns for their own economies? We've been trying to shed light on that using a number of different types of analysis of different data sets. For example, looking at patents, one way of measuring innovation, showing that the UK has comparative strengths in a number of relevant technologies, whether it's wind, ocean energy, carbon capture usage and storage. And there's evidence that such technologies can generate strong returns in the UK. Um, so finally, again, actually, it's funny how my structure ended up being similar to yours, having read your book. A note on the countries that are still industrializing. Um, I've been talking again mainly about the advanced economies at the technology frontier, and we know that it's really a story of diffusion into those countries so that they can grow in a better way, in a cleaner and healthier way. There's no reason to think that growth paths have to be the same. We've seen in technologies to do with telecommunications, for example, many areas have, have just skipped landline rollout and gone to mobile. And there were some really interesting examples in the book about some quite strange medical um, techniques that were used in the past. No one considers that when other countries develop their health systems, they need to use all the original early medicine technologies that were kind of developed um, in more industrialized countries, perhaps, or more advanced economies. So it's about a better form of growth. But of course, when we're thinking about the industrializing or emerging economies, adaptation is going to be crucial and getting the finance there, both for the adoption of the technologies and the adaptation too. So in conclusion, I just want to say, you know, I think what we need, we have quite strong political consensus in the drive to net zero and the need for growth. Um, what we need is more action. And I think it's really important, therefore, to create a positive, realistic vision that people can buy into, support and understand can be fair. Um, and I think this book really con contributes to that vision. So I want to congratulate you again for the book and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. So we have already received quite a few questions from our online audience. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there will be a lot also here in person. Now, um, I will therefore just keep it very short, my question, I'll keep it very short, and try to contrast a bit uh, two quotes actually from uh, um, both our panelists. The first one is from Alessio. You have to know that both are very prolific writers as well. And uh, um, uh, Alessio, in an LSE blog, actually, in the last month, he wrote, the green revolution will not be made by top, uh, top down by binding international treaties according to scientifically set parameters, but rather bottom up by the de determination and persistence of climate conscious citizens. So you put a lot of weight on these persistent voters and uh, climate conscious citizens. And uh, Anna, in, uh, at the end of uh, last year, uh, Lani is a very close, Anna is a very close observer of uh, um, economic policy in the UK and she was writing what's painfully uh, missing given the UK's prolonged stagnation and current economic crisis is an overarching long-term growth strategy uh, and uh, given also your work in the LSE Growth Commission uh, you have seen a lot of these strategies and uh, failed announcements in a, in a way over the years. So my question to both of you is, how can we bring the two together, right? Uh, I, I met for the first time Alessio in a workshop on structural reforms, in which he was presenting actually a paper on do structural reforms yield growth? 
And for structural reforms, you actually need both the government-led approach, but also you need the citizens and the voters supporting this. So what's your view on this? Why, where do you see uh, the, the problem in a way lying in terms of bringing the two together? Um, so I, yes, I am a prolific writer. I have to say that the, uh, the fear, the greatest fear when writing blogs is always that one of your sentences is going to be taken out and then you have to explain why you said that thing. But I'm glad I have the time to, to do that here. Um, so what I was trying to say in the blog, in the book, uh, I mean, I've been saying this um, extensively, is um, to a certain extent, there is this perception that climate change is a global problem, which is true on the surface of it, therefore it requires a global solution, which again, on the surface of it is true. The fact that it requires one doesn't necessarily mean you will get one, and the reason why I suspect you will not get one is that you have to go beyond the, the generic term and say climate change will affect the, the world. Yes, it will affect the world in the same way in which death affects the world, uh, but in different ways. If you have more resources uh, to uh, shore up against uh, the uh, deadliest effect of climate change, it will affect you in a different way. If you have uh, unlucky geography, uh, it will affect you in a different way. Um, if you have the policies that uh, can uh, rebuild uh, and so on, and you have more financial access to financial markets, it will, uh, will affect you in a different way. And all this is to say that we are not moving in the direction uh, towards uh, the ultimate global treaty on climate change that rules them all. We want to quote uh, the, King, the Lord of the Rings. Um, but rather, we're entering a world that is going to be more and more um, tumultuous, or where tensions between countries, I would argue, are on the rise. Not, uh, we're not coming together to the ultimate moment in which humanity will, uh, will rise and, uh, and, uh, and draft the final treaty to, to deal with climate change at the global level. Now, normally, this leads economists to depression, uh, saying, you know, you have these uh, problems of, uh, that you will never manage to uh, go beyond uh, of uh, uh, global public good and there is no way to uh, get around the free rider problem and so on. And I would argue, I argue in the book that that's not the case. We, it's not going to be the first best. So, of course, it would be nice to design uh, the perfect uh, global decarbonization strategy at the global level that takes care of inequalities and, and uh, and decarbonizes faster where this is needed the most, where there is more coal, uh, access to finance unlimited, we just transfer resources from where there is more to where there is less, of course, it would be great. But it ain't gonna happen, and we're not moving towards a world where this is gonna happen, and so we have to deal with what we have. And all I'm saying in the book is, it is feasible, and the way this is gonna work is, uh, or the reason why this is gonna work, or the, the initial reason why this is gonna work is that people want it. And this is why it is so central that citizens are on board this green transition, because in the moment in which you start seeing the urgency of climate change, and this is something we see, we see it in surveys. So people will say the problem exists and it's urgent. You see it across the board. You see it also in emerging markets where these surveys are run. So the problem is acknowledged by now. And therefore, finding a solution to it is generally seen as a higher um, a valued product 
So if I give you something that allows you to deal with this problem, you see it as some, you attach value to it. This is the beginning of everything because it means that then companies have an interest in trying to sell you something, even if it comes at a higher cost for those that can afford it early in the early stage, that you're going to try and buy it. We see it now uh, to a certain extent uh, with, uh, let's say, electric vehicles. The top-notch car of whatever car makers is going to be electric. Uh, it just means that you see it as a superior technology. The implication of this is that you're going to have more and more companies producing them. As they produce them more, they become cheaper. At some point, you reach the point of price parity. At some point, the green option is the cheaper option. And that, that's where you will have the spread of these technologies throughout and eventually even to countries that have less financial uh, uh, access, uh, let's say, and that cannot afford, uh, afford it early on. And so that's why I, I think that, let's say, citizens' role is crucial and that we're, we're still going to see this transition even without the ultimate treaty that binds countries to their decarbonizations. Yeah, I mean, I think you need both citizens, engaged consumers, their role is fundamental, but it's also, it's obviously very two-way. Those people will shape the decisions and the incentives of politicians, of businesses. But at the same time, for me, the role of an effective leader or a government is to set out a vision and actually implement that vision in a way that's going to hopefully generate growth in a fair way, so thinking about the distributional aspects. And that way they will make it easier for consumers to access some of these superior but currently perhaps more expensive technologies until they come down in, in price. Um, and also will generate more rather than less um, public support for those policies. So it has to be both bottom up and top down. Obviously in many areas the, the fundamental decisions or the policy levers they need to be taken at national, international levels, whether it's areas of cooperation, whether it's, you know, big decisions on energy infrastructure, where it's going to be located. In the UK, there are lots of obstacles, perhaps, in the planning system, both to things like renewable energy infrastructure development, but also to the types of investments that we know are needed for growth, for example. So there are many things that need to be done um, at, say, central government level, local government being important too, and all of this creating a vision that can get support and, and get into a virtuous cycle, basically. Thank you very much. So as promised, um, I'm now going to open up uh, to questions from the floor. Please state your affiliation and uh, be concise. And I'll also ask the speakers to be concise in their answers, please. Uh, and I already have quite a few online. So we have one in the first row and one in the middle. Uh, wait for the revolving mic one in the back, please. Hello, yeah. um, Bernard Casey from um, London and Frankfurt, once of the OECD and once of this place too. Um, I wanted to pick up on the issue of um, how people participate and whether people really are willing to participate in this and whether people really want it and whether consumers are really engaged. And I'm going to bring this right down to somewhere very local, which is a university or universities in this country which run a pension system. And that pension system is a big investor. 
Now, that pension system is constrained in what it can invest in, and particularly its ability to invest in things like green transitions. There are lots of rules because that pension system is ultimately supposed to be providing the best pensions for its members. One of the things which the university pension system, he never published this, but I did publish it, I think in a blog at LSE as well, actually showed what university teachers wanted from their pension system. And it actually showed how many university teachers thought their pension system should be socially responsible and engaged um, as an investor. It showed a proportion. That proportion was not very large. And you'd have thought that university teachers would have been at the forefront of being rather engaged. When you actually look at where these people, when they have the choice, and not the university pension system itself, but they as investors have a choice in where they are investing, you find that the proportion of people doing things is even smaller. It is very small indeed. So I am concerned about whether people really are engaged, how much they are engaged, and how much movement we are going to see in this population in particular. Because if we can't do it here, I don't think we're going to do it anywhere else either. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very clear. Uh, Hi. Please. Um, I have two questions, actually. The first is, I'm wondering um, what you think about the disconnect in terms of what people want on a large scale, um, but they might not see, uh, it might not yield immediate results. Um, such as green energy versus what they want in the immediate present because I think a lot of people would say generally yes we want green technology or we know climate change is real and we want to make a difference but you don't see people making changes in their um, daily lives to to reach uh, those goals and the second thing is um, green green versus sustainable um, kind of where that sits so uh, with the mention of electric cars, for example, I'm not an expert, so excuse if I make a mistake, but I believe that they require a very large amount of copper, and in the long term, that's actually not very sustainable. Um, so I'm just wondering kind of where, uh, where green sits uh, in comparison to sustainability. Thank you, and the very last question in the last row, just wait for the revolving mic, if you can pass it along there. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Fabio. I'm a fellow here in social policy. Uh, I have two questions for you. So um, <clears throat> the point that you make in the book is that growth matters, and hence the title of your book and the argument for sustainable economic growth and the criticism of the growth scenarios, which you, um, which you say they only want growth <clears throat> in the sectors that matter. Uh, now, in the sec second cha chapter of your book, you talk about um, morality, because you say that in mainstream economics, we tend to shy away from morality. Um, um, and um, so my question is, your point, as also stressed by the other, by the other panelists, is that um, we need to have a better type of growth. But in order to do so, we clearly need to define what better means in the first place. 
And in one of the limitations of GDP is that it doesn't measure what is good or bad. So a life-saving medicine and a ballet, they both contribute to economic growth. Um, so let's not shy away. Do you think that the production of weapons and the production of tobacco, just to give a few examples, are good or not? And if they're not good, then isn't identifying the sectors that matter and that are better exactly what you criticized of the growth? And then if it's not good, then how exactly can we achieve a good growth? It's not by defining and promoting one good and better uh, are. And then my second last question is, in, the, in a paper that you recently wrote from the European Commission on a very similar uh, argument than the book, um, you argue that in order to move further beyond GDP, we need more comp comprehensive tables of well-being indicators as well as composite indices of well-being. I was just wondering um, what you base the recommendations on, because the, 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 the the, all the studies that have been done on the topic, including the studies by the European Commission, none of them identifies the lack of comprehensiveness as the problem. In fact, that's of, often found to be the opposite. And also composite indices of well-being have found to be uh, not impactful. I mean, well-being indices in general have found not to be impactful on policy making. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we have enough. <laughs> uh, Alessio, do you want to start and then Anna, or the other way around? And feel free to pick the questions that you want. Um, I'll start from uh, the last one. I, I, I love it when people actually read the stuff I write <laughs> from time to time, and I can tell that you're well-versed. Um, so the, the question on GDP and the fact that GDP doesn't diversify, let's say, between the good stuff and the bad stuff, um, it, it's interesting because this debate was there when GDP was developed in the first place. So 1930s, uh, before the, around the time of the Great Recession, uh, the Great Depression and so on. Um, and, uh, and eventually, it was decided not to diversify uh, and have the good stuff or the bad stuff because you would get stuck into all sorts of perverse things like is military good or bad, it's something you were hinting at with your example on weapons. Is police good or bad? Or is it an, uh, you know, a necessary evil, let's say? It's not good per se that you need to have police uh, and, and pay for, for police, uh, but you, you just have to, unfortunately, you, you, you still have to have it. Um, and so they decided to keep it more neutral, let's say. And you account for, for everything and I think, I suspect, that this is part of the reason why GDP has been so resilient across time. So the fact that it didn't take this moral uh, argument compass at that specific moment in time maybe made it very resilient across time. And instead, when you do try to add the, the, a moral reading, that's when time change, and then you, you, you would have to update this thing. And I think you're making a good point with, with weapons, because there was all a discussion on ESG ratings until recently, so a year ago, let's say, about whether weapons and weapon producers should be in ESG or not. And the argument was it should not, because it's a negative uh, industry, and it destroys, and so on. And let's say uh, that was leading to less capital flowing to these type of companies. Of course, the, the world has changed uh, since uh, over the last uh, 12 months or so. 
And now there is a discussion whether we, had, you know, government citizens or what not want more of these weapons or not, and therefore whether finance should access, basically should be provided to these companies, yes or no. All this to say that if you attach these moral dimensions, you're at risk of binding a certain indicator to the time you're in and potentially to the government you're in. Which is why I don't believe that we're going to, I make the point also in the paper you were referencing of the European Commission, I don't believe that we're going to reach the ultimate consensus across the world on the final, let's say, well-being indicator or beyond GDP scoreboard or whatever it is, in the same way in which we eventually had it on GDP. And so that you're, different organizations will produce different metrics, different countries will produce different metrics, different governments in the same country might reshape the metric that they are using to guide their policy making beyond GDP, so not looking only at this individual metric, but uh, assigning value to the priority, what they see as the priority of the moment. Um, so that's one, uh, one point. The point on green uh, and sustainable or climate and environment effectively is, uh, is fair. And of course, in the moment in which I tell you we need to experience exponential growth in a specific thing, uh, which could be, let's say, electric uh, vehicles of, of different types, the, the question comes, aren't we just uh, kicking the can down the road and then we're going to have the same problem on a different dimension later on? Um, I would argue that, let's say, managing uh, scarcity is something the system is good at and optimizing is something the system is good at, and a combination of efficiency improvements and recycling and, and circular type of economy is something that we're going to need, and it's actually good that we're starting to think ahead. So rather than wait for the problem to materialize in 10 years time or so, there is a, a realization now that we, we realize that our relationship with the environment is, uh, is under strains, let's say, to say, look, we have to think about this problem of, let's say, batteries and how we're going to plan for their extensive recycling now, not in uh, 20 years' time when we're sitting on a pile of uh, used uh, copper, let's say. So policy measures are being taken already there. On pension systems, maybe something that you want to comment more on, also given it's, it's on the UK, maybe I'll say just one thing, which is on, uh, let's say, as things stand, green, some analyses have been run on these things, say the return on investment of green assets broadly defined tends to be higher than the return on, on brown assets. And uh, the reason why I would argue that pension funds are not investing in these things, and maybe like, rightly so, is that pension funds prioritize safety. And if, if you believe what I told you early on, which is we live in a, in a fossil fuel civilization, when you're prioritizing safety, you're probably prioritizing companies that are the so-called cash cows. So big companies that have been around for, for decades and just continue producing whatever it is, rather than the breakthrough technologies of the future, which is actually where the returns are, but pension funds are not prioritizing returns, they're pri prioritizing safety. Yeah, I can yeah, carry on on that point. I mean, I would have made those same points, which is that, you know, now we're seeing some green technologies being widely deployed, but in recent years, this has been an innovative and hence more risky area. So all of the 
the issues that, you know, it's a market failure that often there are financing constraints on things that are innovative where the returns are somehow uncertain or less certain than an incumbent technology. Um, there, this is actually quite a long-standing issue in the UK. There's been the patient capital review. There's currently a review being at w in which the Bank of England is involved looking at how pension funds can actually be channeled into investments that are potentially more risky but more innovative and can actually support growth in the UK. Um, so that, you know, that is definitely a fair um, thing to raise and hopefully you know, it's as, as this transition goes on and those technologies become more mainstream, you would hope also that more finance is just flowing there anyway. Um, I think the, the point about the disconnect between people wanting change and then not necessarily making the change in their own life, there are many reasons for that. Mm -hmm. And a key one is affordability. Um, and it's not just those at the lowest end of the income distribution that can't afford some of the things that need to be done. I mean, electric vehicles are relatively expensive. Um, Upgrading the insulation of your home is not only expensive, it's disruptive. Heat pumps are expensive. Um, lots of these things, even if you want to see the change, you can't necessarily do it. Um, that's why we need not only, you know, through the technological change, the deployment, the cost coming down, through learning by doing, through economies of scale, that will help. But through government support, incentives, pump priming markets, that, those sorts of mechanisms are going to help too. And another one is regulation. So if a government regulates for the phase out of a technology by a certain date, that gets all actors aligned in terms of making the changes, perhaps making a change that is somehow not immediately affordable, but thinking, well, we've got to make the change in five years, so we might as well do it now. So, you know, I think there are lots of ways that we can understand why people are inconsistent between their desire for change and whether they can make it at the micro level but there's also a lot of things that can be done to try and align those things. Thank you. Since we started uh, five to seven minutes late, I'm also gonna take a couple of questions from the online audience, the ones that have been most upvoted. So I'll start with uh, Heidi Zamsov. They are both on innovation and technology, and they are quite interesting. So Heidi, who is a PhD student in psychological, and behavioral science at MSC, she, uh, she says, I haven't read the book, but it seems like you are saying we need to change our relationship with nature. Yet your solutions depend on technologies which may likely cause further environmental damage, for example, requiring resource extraction, uh, extraction of critical minerals and deep sea mining. How do you reconcile this? Can we truly change our relationship with nature if we continue to focus solely on serving the desires of humans? And the second question uh, is by Allegra Sajesa, LSE Research Staff in Energy at IGC. She's asking, uh, uh, nature or ecosystems are complex and interdependent. By focusing only on innovation, even if they are focused on improving resource energy efficiency, what will happen if we reach a climate tipping point? How will green growth be able to respond to an extreme change in the climate? So uh, they both relate to technologies and innovation, but from different angles. Um, I don't know if Anna, you yeah, have an sure. initial reaction and then well, Yeah, I think the first point actually is along the same lines as what we previously discussed, which is scarcity, minerals, broader sustainability concerns. And I think, you know, that's why we need to not just think mechanically just about net zero, we need to think about sustainability more broadly. And we do need to be thinking about recycling. You know, there's an enormous amount of waste. If we think about 
the mobile phones we have, how much of all the minerals, the scarce minerals in those are actually recycled. Surely we can do much more. And again, that's where regulation will come into this and, and other incentives. Many companies are now giving incentives to give your phone back. So people are therefore more likely to do it. Um, in terms of the complexities of nature, we had, um, you know, this is, we can't predict a lot of the, the modeling on climate it gives us likely outcomes, but of course we might reach various tipping points, which mean that everything is much worse than we thought. Um, when we talk about innovation, it's innovation in a broad sense. It's not just innovation, new hard technologies. It's innovation in, in how we do things and how we behave. Um, and we also have to continue innovating in new ways, new solutions that we don't yet know necessarily are part of the existing plan. So if you look at, you know, Take our path to net zero. There are a number of technologies that already exist. We need to deploy them. There are other areas we know we need to work more, such as hydrogen, such as direct air capture. I think there was a question actually about, you know, to what extent does carbon capture usage and storage feature in all of this? Well, it was originally considered quite a um, controversial area. Now it's very much embedded in, in the plan A's, as we might say. You know, the plan to net zero is net because we're thinking now about directly capturing air from the atmosphere, putting this on large emission sources. Um, and there's, there's a space of technological change which has emerged recently. A more contentious area is solar geoengineering and other ways that we can, perhaps if things don't go our way, that we might be able to save humanity. Um, we had a very interesting debate at the LSE and LSE Environment Week about that. You know, obviously there's issues of moral hazard. If we develop such technologies, people might say we don't need to be doing mitigation. But the reality is, you know, R&D systems, research, academic research, we need to allow a lot of that basic science frontier research because there are many problems we don't know we have yet. We don't know what the solutions are. And if you look at the history, I think there are examples in the book, again, many technologies when they're invented, people didn't foresee the ultimate use of that technology. So, you know, it's a combination of being recognizing the uncertainty in the system um, and doing what we can do based on what we realistically expect to happen as well. Thank you. Alessio. So great uh, questions, uh, I guess proof uh, of the high quality of uh, people studying, working, uh, doing their PhD at this uh, glorious institution. Um, the first is uh, very important. And I think that what I would argue is that we're not necessarily trying to change our relationship with nature, we're trying to manage our relationship with nature. The difference is, is subtle but profound. And what I mean there is we live, uh, this is something on which Hannah Ricci has been writing also in, uh, on our world in data, we live a bit in this myth uh, in this primordial myth whereby we used to live in balance with nature and then something horrible happened, be it the Industrial Revolution or, or something else, and then we started destroying nature. And what I would argue, but again I'm not alone, is to say, look, this idea of the, of the balance that was there has always been a bit of a myth. There, there's always been a tense relationship with, between humans and, uh, and nature, the very act of agriculture, you could argue, is impinging on nature, especially early on. It was based on slash and burn. 
So you have the zero, very limited knowledge of uh, tech, advanced agricultural techniques. You'd slash down a forest, burn it, grow whatever you could on it, then the land is barren, you move on, you slash, you burn, and so on. So even if we go back to really primordial type of, uh, of uh, relationship between uh, humans and nature, there was already a tension. What I would argue now is, uh, of course, we have a tension where we've gone overboard on a set of principles. You can call them planetary boundaries if you want. Of course, climate change is one, there's, there's many more, and we need to manage that relationship uh, in a way that is uh, to our broader benefit. Um, and that is servicing human needs uh, as well. The discussion on technology versus climate, or innovation versus climate tipping points I'd say two things. The first is we're very well aware of, uh, of climate tipping points that get discussed widely. I would argue that we often miss the fact that also technology experiences tipping points and that technology doesn't spread linearly. Actually, we know there's a wide literature that shows that technology spreads along S-curves. And so they're very slow at the beginning. They experience at some point, there's a tipping point, you enter into an explosive exponential trend, and then you sort of stabilize when you reach maximum market capacity. We see it throughout. We saw it with phones, with telephones, with smartphones. You see it with, with electric vehicles. We're seeing it right now, the Toyota Prius, which I think is one of the, or Leaf, one of the first hybrid cars was out in the 1993, something like that. So this stuff has been around for a while, but it was basically increasing at a very slow rate. And now we're, we're, we're seeing uh, this rate effectively entering into uh, um, exponential trend. So what we are comparing here is an, it's a tipping point, a technological tipping point with a climate tipping point. And the broader point is we will be effectively, it is a race of technology innovation and know-how, whether on mitigation or adaptation, on the one hand, and uh, the climate changing and bringing uh, potentially devastating effects on the other. So it is uh, a clash of these two dynamics uh, or a race of these two dynamics happen, happening. And the one that prevails effectively will determine the future of uh, humanity, to, to quote the, the title, subtitle of the book, um, which is a bit too simple. I, I don't want to, I mean, uh, Anna mentioned that I, this is an optimistic book. Uh, I didn't write a book to be optimistic, let's say. So I didn't sit down at home and I was like, ah, finally, I'm going to write an optimistic book on climate change because there's not enough around there. Um, I wrote a book and it, I ended up having a lot of reviews saying, ah, Terzi is optimistic and so on. I don't know if I'm optimistic. I am just showing that there is a way where, in which this will happen. But I don't want to be Panglossian either. I don't want to pretend that this is easy and it's going to happen and everybody is going to frolic uh, around uh, with uh, green technologies and everything is going to be fine. As a matter of fact, chances are that some parts of the world, some nations, some civilizations will succeed and probably others will not. So I don't want to pretend again that alone as a block humanity will succeed. I think that if we accelerate and if we put all our efforts, uh, governments, uh, uh, businesses, uh, citizens, and so on, on it, it can happen. Um, but it's, there is no certainty. It needs uh, your uh, effort as well. Thank you. Thank you both. So we have come to an end. Um, so I'm going to transform the question that I had into a comment. 
so Olivier Blanchard, uh, one of the famous living economists, uh, um, basically was asked that uh, right after the global financial crisis, how would he change his macroeconomics textbook that uh, I think a lot of you use for undergraduate studies, uh, and which would be the missing chapter. And he said that the financial sector would be the missing chapter. So I wanted to ask Alessio who is the missing chapter, but unfortunately we would have to discover it for his next book uh, then, uh, at this point. So it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity uh, for both me and uh, I think for all of you uh, to listen to tonight's discussion. You can actually order the book, UK Delivery Only, from our official LEC Events Independent Bookshop, Pages of Acne. You can find a link on the event page and for those of you on on, uh, Zoom, you can also find it on the Zoom chat. For those of you here, you can also get it from the book stand uh, that Pages of Acne have set up outside, and Alessio will be signing copies here. Um, and thank you uh, to all those of you who have joined, both here with us uh, at the LSE and online, and a special thanks to our speakers uh, for taking part. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.